Good morning, and uh, it's good to see everyone. Before we send the children down and we pray for them, I'm going to say something to them. Last week, up here, did you know we taught what the Holy Spirit wants to do with you in your life? Did you know we taught that? <clears throat> this is the coolest place in the, in the whole church for me to stand. Because I'm talking and I'm hearing myself in the back of my head. That's great. <laughs> in children's church, as you head down, I want you to think about this today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit living in you. We call that ministry the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He lives and dwells in you. But he doesn't always express himself through you unless you are choosing to submit to him, to be what he wants, to, to have him fill you. There's a command in the Bible that says, be filled by the Spirit. And do you know what that means? If God commands it, it means you can say yes or no. You can say no to God's command, but it's a command. Now, what do we call it if we say yes to something God says? Is that your yes button? Do you know about the yes button and the no button? God says, be filled by the Spirit, and I either say yes or no. What am I supposed to say to God? Yes, yes I'm supposed to say yes and do what he said. Being filled by the Spirit is where God has his expressed character through us. He uses his word to bring Jesus Christ's attitude through us. And do you know what the attitude is? There's one big word, young people. If you have the character of Jesus being expressed through you, it's a big word. You ready for it? Do you know what it is? You do, you just don't know what I'm thinking. You know the word, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, you know it. Submit one to another in the fear of Christ means humility. Humility. That's not a guy named Hugh with the last name Mility. Humility. <laughs> now, can somebody under 15 tell me what humility means? One of you is like, well, I certainly can't. Get it, moms and dads? They're, okay, sarcasm is a little bit, little bit tied on. Humility means that you say, I am no more or less than God says I am. Humility says, I'm not God. God is God and I'm under him. But what else does it mean? Not only am I under him, but I'm, I am what he made me. What did God make you? You young person, what did God make you? On the spot. Don't do it, Pastor Dave. Don't put little girls on the spot. Or big girls, grown girls, uh, teenage girls. He made you in his image. You're God's image bearer. And you're like, well, he made me a girl. Yes, he did that too. He made you with dimples. Quit putting me on the spot, Pastor Dave. All right. Um, God made you as his image bearer when you, when you first were, were, were born. But there's more. What else did he make you? When you first believed in Jesus, he made you a new creation in Christ. Jordan, do you know that if you believe in Jesus, you're a new creature in Christ? That God made you new the minute, the very minute you said, I believe in Jesus as my savior? Did you know that you're new in Christ? And so you're not to say, I'm nothing and no one and i'm so insignificant you're not supposed to say that I'm talking to the kids moms and dads just relax you're not supposed to say i'm nothing you're supposed to say i am what god says i am i'm made in his image i'm made new in christ for his purposes and because of that i have my eternal value that's what i am and therefore for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to be what God wants me to be. I want to go where God wants me to go. And that is humility. It is Jesus saying to his father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, let your will be done. Can you little young people say that with me? Not as I will. I'll say it again. You say it back to me. Not as I will. Oh my goodness. They're just waiting until I stop talking. I'm never going to stop talking. So get with it. Say, pop off, say it loud so that I feel like you're listening. Not as I will. 
but your will be done. You're going to make me start over. All right, we'll start over. Not as I will, but your will be done. I'm a veteran VBSer. I can do this all day. All right. That is called Christian humility. To say not my way, but God's way. That's humility. And it's the, one of the things that God brings forth in us when we're being filled by the Spirit. Finally. What are you going to do with your moms and dads? What are you going to do as somebody filled with the Spirit? Do you know what God's Word says that you're to do as a child toward your parents? Because of the filling of the Spirit? Huh? Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is... Bam! For this is right. Good job. We teach little children, moms and dads, to obey because the Word of God says it. And it's a great little memory verse. But I want you to know that the command to obey our parents as little children in the household, we obey our parents as a result of the filling of the Spirit and the consequent humility in us that then equips us to obey. For Christian children, for Jordan, let me name some names. I won't. Natalie. Shelby. Caitlin. Mikey Jackson. Gavin. Pastor Dave. For all of us, this is obedience to the Lord. This is our spiritual life. It isn't just get along with your brothers and sisters and obey mom and dad because it makes for peace. It's worship to God for you to obey your parents. You get it? Obeying mom and dad is how you say yes to God. And now it's not about mom and dad so much. It's about God. Let's pray for our kids. Father, if they don't learn authority from us, we fear that they will not learn authority. But we know that you care more for them than we do. We believe that, Father. We trust you with these young people, and I pray for every one of their souls that they'll get on board with your authority, with your way, with your grace, with your plan. All the children represented by all the parents in this church, all those associated with our church family, Father, help them learn to walk by the Spirit and so submit themselves to you and so be humble as they recognize authority in their lives. Father, give them the blessing of learning this young so that they, have, uh, they, they are and can be a blessing to others throughout their lives. We ask for them in Christ's name. We all said, amen. amen. Let's send our young people down to Children's Church if you're headed that way. And then moms and dads, remaining girls and boys, Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians six. Ephesians in a few Sundays. This will be the last one. This is it. We're going to move on. I know. Don't cry. We're going to head over to Philippians next. But today we're closing down the book of Ephesians. This is our 10th of six Sundays. <laughs> six chapters of that. We'll preach it in six Sundays. And then we actually got into the content of Ephesians and said, no way. We're putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And Paul blows our minds with the invisible war. He blows our minds with the invisible war that we wage that is not against flesh and blood. Talking to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have eternal life because they've trusted alone in the Lord Jesus, Paul says that there is an enemy that you are having to combat. And he equips us for that combat and it's a challenge. I wanna very briefly introduce this concept of the war that we wage, that is spiritual in nature, that is against Satan and his demons. That's what he's talking about. The fallen angels that God is permitting to fight God. He permits it and he fights God. They fight God and God's people. And it's a battle of thinking and concepts and ideas and convictions. And it goes straight to the very core of what you really believe. 
That's what we're talking. We're not talking about bullets. We're not talking about guns. We're not talking about um, force-unforced conflict that you can see. Everything you're dealing with here is invisible, including the equipment you are given by God to fight. But the apostle Peter tells young men, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God in 1 Peter 5, 6. Listen to the contrast. It's awesome. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will promote you at the proper time by casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. That's 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. A command with a promise. A command. Humble yourselves under God's hand so that he will promote you, exalt you, uh, prosper you at the proper time by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. And then Peter says, be sober. He's talking not about substances primarily. This involves, could involve substance abuse or uh, sobriety in that way, but he's talking about a stance, like a mindset, an attitude. Be sober, my Bible supplies of spirit. Be on the alert. So you can be not chemically compromised, if you will, but yet not alert. You can be just kind of floating along through life. But Peter says, be on the alert. This is 1 Peter 5, 8. Your enemy, adversary, combatant, the one that wants to get you, your adversary, the devil, diabolos, that's the personal being that the world says doesn't exist, but who very much wants to destroy you. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is out there around the tent, padding around on his big lion paws, looking for somebody to eat. And actually that word devour usually has more of a connotation of drink. And if you've ever seen a lion eating the kill after they get a kill, you know, back on the wild kingdom or whatever, see that lion take down a zebra or a gazelle or something because the, you know, the fast mover kind of cut this way and the lion cut it off and got lucky, snapped its spine or clenched off its throat and uh, choked it to death. That's how they can, they, usually they go for their spine on the back. Usually if you see a lion uh, take a prey and watch what happens after, the movie usually, or the, the video usually cuts after they, they bring it down and kill it. But if you watch what the lion does with it after, it is a gory, nasty horror show. The big old mane on a male lion, big, big black mane lion, gets completely smeared with all the, all the gore and it looks like that lion is devouring like drinking the, uh, the, the lifeblood of that animal. And it's just a horror show. And I think it, uh, Peter has that in mind when he says, looking for someone to devour. You're supposed to say, I don't want that to happen to me. But it's not physical. We're not talking about your personal body being uh, the issue. A lot of people want to go to physical with things and mystical. This is talking about the way you think. And Peter says, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And that's the way Peter touches in first Peter five on what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter six. And he says, what remains, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. By way of review, we put the commands in red in Ephesians chapters four through six, especially. I've been coloring these red because it helps us organize our lives to see God's clear commands. And I said last hour, God gives you a command because he loves you and he wants you to do well in the circumstance. And I want to be a pacifist and I don't want to fight, but I'm told here that I'm going to have to be strong and I'm going to have to actually Put on my armor. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That's omnipotence. Put on the full armor or the panoply of God, all the whole kit that God has for you to go to battle. And this is what he's preparing you for is battle so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The reason you put on the armor is so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. It doesn't say so that you'll be able to go into the devil's territory and claim ground. It doesn't say that you'll, you'll be able to outsmart him. It doesn't say that you, so that you'll be able to, to, to defeat him on his own territory and, and claim this spot for Jesus. It doesn't say that. It says you'll be able to stand firm, hold your ground, tell the truth, hold fast to the truth. This is the battle. This is the battle. So you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Where in the Bible, beloved, would you and I go to see the schemes of the devil at work? 
Where would we go in the word of God to see exactly what he's talking about? Do you have a thought? I am a big fan of the Bible in its prologue, where in chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis, we have, we have the entire worldview. A biblical worldview is established in Genesis 1 through 11. And in chapter 3, the entire point of the third chapter of Genesis is to show you the war that we're in. And the battle is, God said, don't eat. Satan says, go ahead and eat. God says, no, it'll kill you. Satan says, I won't kill you. It's good for you. And then you have to decide who you believe. That's the battle. That's it. God said, somebody else, whoever else says, I oh, know it's not true. Now, how do I know in all my wisdom, which is probably about feel about a thimble. How do I know? Hopefully it's a big thimble, y'all. But how do I know that Satan is the, is the serpent in Genesis 3? How do I know that this is the bad guy that we're talking about? This is the devil and Satan. How do I know that this is a personal being that we're talking about through the rest of Scripture? You could say, well, Revelation 12 tells you. The Apostle John says in Rev 12 that the serpent of old is the devil and Satan, who's the, the dragon in Revelation 12. I know that way. How do I know? I was challenged by, the, by one of my favorite professors in seminary on this. How do you know from Genesis 3 that you're talking about the devil, that he's the adversary, that he's the one that speaks against God? Let's look at it real quick. Genesis 3, verse 5, saith. The musical sound of the turning of the onion paper in our Bibles, Genesis 3 saith, now in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the tree, from fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. Eat from it or touch it or you'll die. And so she says something like what God had said in Genesis 2 to Adam. She says, we, we can't eat it or touch it or we'll die. God said, in the very day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will absolutely without question, certainly die. That's what the Hebrew idiom says. And then the serpent said in verse four to the woman, you surely will not die. Now notice the Hebrew idiom, you absolutely certainly without question will not die. And, and it's very clear uh, between Genesis 2, I think 2.17 and here 3.4, it's the same idiom. It's the same Hebrew doubling of the verb in order to make it absolutely certain. So how do I know, says my beloved Dr. Elliot Johnson, how do I know from Genesis 3 that the serpent is Satan? Well, it's, he's defined. The, the whole idea of Satan is defined right here. God said, you'll die, absolutely. And Satan said, you won't die, certainly will not die. That's the concept of Satan, the adversary, is God's word says this way, and then Satan says no. So how do I know when I'm dealing with Satan? No to God's word. Ta-da, that's it. That's, what, that's, that's the whole concept. We're not talking about somebody in a red suit with horns or fangs or a pointy tail or the stupid show Lucifer or any of the things. It's not Al Pacino as a, as a, a defense attorney. It's not, it, what we're dealing with here, okay, is somebody that has opposed God by saying what God said isn't true because God doesn't tell the truth. And the alternative, and he is the alternative to God who loves you, who made you, who has sent his son to die for you, sharing himself with you. That's what the word of God is. So very, I mean, Satanology in the Bible is real simple. It's very simple. The concept of Satan is he's a personal being who hates God and hates what God loves and is doing his very best to disconnect you from him. And this is the battle of our time. And so back to the scriptures in um, Ephesians 6.10 or 6.11. Put on the panoply of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because for us, the struggle is not against blood and flesh, 
but against the rulers, the authorities, the world rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. These are a bunch, there's four different nouns describing powers, personal beings who have a network. Now, it doesn't define the network. He doesn't show you what it looks like. We don't have, I mean, God could have, he's infinitely powerful. He could have given you a, a you know, a 16 page glossy spread in National Geographic magazine of, of, of what he sees of this superstructure, this hierarchy of angelic creation. But he doesn't, he doesn't tell you, just says, these are the kinds of beings that we're dealing with. This is the nature of the war. We're not fighting each other. It's not even about other people. Now, see, in, in a non-Christian context, Christians are perceived as those who are opposed to unbelievers. You've got the believers and the unbelievers and the Christians think they're better or the Christians are, you know, going after the unbelievers or, or something like that. The religious right and all that. No, that's not a Christian idea. Actually, every one of us is born with a central need, and it is that we have a, an expiration date. We're going to die. And every one of us is in that same boat, and we all need what only the Lord Jesus Christ provides. And so we are all sinners, and some of us have trusted in Jesus so that we have eternal life. And those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, and for any of you that have not, those who have trusted in Jesus, it is their mission in life to love you as God does with the truth of his gift of the gospel. It is not about an opposition. It is about a recognition. We are at war. You have an enemy that is trying to destroy you. And our, we're opposed to him. Sometimes I will describe alternative uh, worldviews. Like I'll talk about... Um, what, what uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and these guys came up with in, in Mormonism or the Watchtower Society and the ideas of, um, of uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses or, or some other field. And always in these movements, which I will argue reading the scriptures are counter to what God has said. They differ with what God has said. A lot of times in these movements, I will, um, I will um, point out what the speaker said. What did Joseph Smith teach? Or, or Marcion, early church, second century, rejected all the Jews, anti-Semite, and he tried to, to take all the Jewishness out of the scriptures and therefore undid and very unchristian what he did with the scriptures. Anti-Semitism is one of Satan's favorite um, tools and it's, it's corrupted so much of church history. But I'll point out these views, the alternative views and, and kind of describe them. And sometimes I think people are, are hearing um, that I'm talking about Mormons or the people that knock on your door with, uh, you know, with the two Jehovah's Witnesses that came by nicely dressed, you know, smelling good and uh, looking fine. Or that I'm, I'm down on any other form of Arianism that denies uh, Jesus Christ and his deity or the people of it. And here's what I'm trying to say. If I come down and say, I differ with this view that's not the same as saying, I reject these people. Well, the problem with Mormons. No, the, pro the problem with all of us is that we have an enemy who is, his whole goal is to deceive us. He's got a lot of games going. He's got the Middle East game. It's a big game. He's been running it since 6th century, century AD. And Satan's like a, 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 a ringmaster of a big circus and there's lots of rings going on. He's playing a lot of games that say no to God that differ with what God has told us through the Lord Jesus Christ, especially. And so understand our problem, my problem would never be with these people to the extent that they believe the dogmas that Satan has taught them that are contrary to God. I consider them compromised and I want to have compassion on them. I want to help. I differ. I disagree. We could talk about what's going on in Washington, D.C. There's a cult that's arising. You know what the cult I'm talking about? I'm not talking about QAnon, that cult, whatever that is. <laughs> I'm glad nobody just said, hey. Um, <laughs> but the cult of the government is going to solve all our problems. That's a, that's a religious conviction in your secular society. All those people of a certain character, a certain perspective that think the government solves man's problems. And so they're looking to give government more power and more of other people's money to solve everyone's problems. Those people of that cult, of that mindset, I consider them deceived. 
They're compromised. They're prisoners of war. There's a war on. It's a war of ideas. Let's have some compassion. But we have in Ephesians chapter 6 a very clear delineation of the nature of our war. It's in thought. It's what we believe. And it is where everything lives. It's where everything matters. And so this, this drives down to your worldview. It drives down to the very core of what you really believe. Here's what I'm talking about. You and I would probably have some interesting conversations about what we're going to do in November about the election. Probably some interesting conversations. And I believe there's a right answer uh, in every case. I think there's a God's best answer for what you do. And generally in American politics, in my life, since I've been a voter, I believe it is usually the lesser of two evils. Usually you're voting for with a, a, this guy or that guy or this gal and that girl. You're picking between, uh, I'm usually opposing someone with my vote rather than saying, oh, this is what I really believe in. The lesser of two evils generally. And I think you know, that's, a, that's a, a, a remark about the sinfulness of man. And um, no matter how, free to, how much freedom we get, we always seem to mess it up. But here we're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about what's the right answer in the voting booth, right? No. Because that is merely an application of what you really believe. See, what, we need to deal with what, what we really believe before we get up to the level of Green New Deal or something. You need to think about, first of all, come down the chute to what you really believe at the foundation of reality. Do you believe that there's a creator who has a perspective on right and wrong? Or do you believe that you're just out there on your own and uh, there's nobody running the shop. Those are two options. And how you go, go with that first decision is really gonna make a huge difference. If there's a God, if there's a creator, as we believe, then you're gonna immediately have some obligations as a consequence. If there is no creator, well, that's why people are atheistic. They don't wanna submit to a creator. They're sinners, we're all sinners, and they don't wanna submit to God. Let's go from that, from the idea of God as the as the beginning, before there was anything, there was the creator, a personal being who forever existed before creation. And the alternative is, is, is dead matter that's always been there for no reason. One of those seems more absurd to me than the other. But a, the Christian claim is an eternal creator who's always been there so that the nature of reality is personal being and, and harmony between three persons, father, son, and spirit. That's the origin of my worldview. And if you build from there, you have a next question. Has he said anything to us? Or are we just supposed to be like, well, he's there. And so we ought to try to be good folk. If he has said something to you, what do we call that? That's called revelation. And if he has said something to you successfully where he can in his, in his power and wisdom actually communicate with the language he designed to speak to our brains, which he designed using language and and the, the miracle of speech, in other words, it works all just fine. Has he communicated and, and do I have hold of what he said? Because once I've got a creator and I hear him speaking, I have everything I need for a worldview because now I know what he told me. This is the Christian worldview. There are Christians that don't have this worldview but it's, they're kind of a, a walking contradiction. They don't really believe what God said, but they, well, I believe in Christ as their savior. And I, I'll, perhaps there are Christians like this, but it's not the Christian worldview. The idea is that God is, and he's spoken. And so, and, and that makes all the difference about what my life needs to be. Because now he's spoken to me. He's my creator. I'm beholden to him for my life and existence. And it turns out all the good things are his gift. It's his grace. It's his love. So do I believe that I have a creator? Do I believe that he's spoken? And pretty soon you're going to end up with a right answer in November because you're going to start asking the question after we've said what he's, what has he said? We'll say, how does that tell me what is right and wrong? And now we're in ethics. What is the right thing? And what's the wrong thing? Let's do a quick lab on that. You're with me. This is fun. I think it's fun. I hope you think it's fun. This is the time I want you to have fun. In Genesis, sorry, Exodus chapter 20, God told us the 10 words. The 10 words have been, uh, in, in Hebrew, the 10 words have been called the 10 commandments. 10 commandments. God's um, 
covenantal relationship, setting up a theocracy, the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. That's, the, that's what the Ten Commandments uh, kick off is this code that God gave Israel. It gave, he gave them in their uh, case law. He gave them um, their um, apodictic law, I believe is how we call it. Um, he gave them basically their constitution. So there was no legislative branch in Israel and their government the way God set it up. He'd already given them the law. They had executive and judicial, but they didn't have legislative. God already took care of that. Okay. Now, in setting up this government, he gave them the 10 words and the first four are how you treat God. The last six are how you treat people. Don't kill them. Don't covet. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness, these kinds of things. Now, I believe that according to the Apostle Paul and everything we have from Exodus 20 on, these are a portrait of God's perfect righteousness. They portray, and in some cases directly connect to God's perfect, in, in, in almost all cases, connect directly to God's perfect righteousness. It's not just for ritual portrayal that God says, um, uh, don't murder. This is a direct contradiction of God's character that we murder. When God says, don't wear garments of mixed fabric to Israel, don't wear polyester or something, uh, he's making a, an illustration it's not unclean to wear cotton poly mix. It's an illustration that God is unmixed in his righteousness. And so sometimes the law does this. Sometimes it's a direct connection to righteousness. And sometimes it's a portrayal of righteousness and sanctification. Now, in that holy law that God gave national Israel for the function of that theocratic state, I hope I'm very clear on that. That's what that was. And that's why the book of Hebrews tells you that's the old covenant and now we have a new covenant. In that setup, God said a couple of things about the right dealing with people. Did anybody, uh, did everybody come here in a car today? I'm glad you came in your car. I need everybody to pull out your car keys and I'm gonna go out to the parking lot and see if anybody has a nicer car than mine. Now, Mark, you and I both know that no one does. I have a Lexus, yeah with 430,000 miles on it. <laughs> it's, that's called a Toyota commercial. Now, uh, I will always go for 2005 Lexi. It's always something I'll be looking for because of that car. All right, so um, I'm gonna, but, but no, don't lose the bead on the illustration. I'm gonna grab um, a, a couple seconds, go outside and look at who's got a better car. I think it's gonna be the orange one. And um, yeah, Bryn. And I'm gonna grab uh, your keys and I'm just gonna take it. Okay. Amen. That's it. That's the thing that's going to happen. And everybody knows if you have any kind of common sense that that would be a moral breach that I would just take your car. And there's a simple reason why that'd be wrong. Without God telling me at Mount Sinai, I would know it's wrong. I think because God's image bearer, I think he's put this in us because the thing is, hopefully you're teaching your kids this, that's not my car. Ta-da. Amen. It's not my, I didn't, I, that's not my car. I didn't buy that. I didn't work for that. That's someone else's car. That's your car, Brendan. But see, I'm just going to say your car is my car. I know of a religious cult in which the pastor a couple 150 years ago said all the attractive women that I think are desirable are now my wives. Husbands deal with it. You'd like me to name that cult, wouldn't you? So I could tell you who in the world said that. I just look it up. Google. It's crazy. What's even crazier is that that thing is huge now, billions and billions of dollars and people and millions of people around the world. And this thing where the original founder said, the women that I find attractive are now my wives. I have a word for that. It's satanic and it's theft and it's crazy. I think theft is crazy. I think when someone comes to your house and says, oh, look, mine, I think that's insane because it's not theirs, it's yours. Now, how do I know it's yours? Isn't that interesting? We're at the fundamentals of, of worldview now. The only way you know that is because you have a creator who made all the stuff and distributed it. And he's in charge of that distribution. And he said in Exodus 20, thou shalt not, what? Steal but I wanted it. What's that called when you have it and I want it to the point that I start thinking about me having it? What's that called? And he says in those same verses in Exodus 20, thou shalt not covet. 
and what we just did, if those things are true, that it's wrong for you to have something or someone that I want for myself, that I'm supposed to not do that because of who God is. If that's true, and it is in Exodus 20, then you can never have a political system based on looking at someone else's problem. Oh, the rich have too much. And so what we need to do is elect representatives with weapons, police, who can enforce tax code so that they are with their tax code and police able to steal from those rich people and give to the people that don't have it. That's called theft. So any system socialism based on covetousness and theft would be, according to Exodus 20, satanic. I'm absolutely dogmatic that that's where we are tending and that that's a satanic trajectory because it's theft. Why does the government levy taxes? It's supposed to be for the common good, as we've originally stated in our documents. The idea of a taxation was originally for the protection from, uh, from military invasion from without, that's the standing army, protection from the wicked uh, intruder from within, that would be like your law enforcement, police type things. These are the primary functions of government. And then you would go beyond that to things like bridges, roads, things, th you know, this is the function of government. The idea of, I mean, in, in our country right now, the taxation isn't like it has been in the past. In the past, we're talking 70, 80% taxation in some tax brackets. FDR actually proposed a 100% tax <laughs> income tax for certain tax brackets and it was struck down. But I mean, I'm just saying that why? Because of socialism, because of the idea that the poor need a little more than, the, than, than they have and the rich have it. So we're going to take it from the rich and give it to the poor. And this socialistic impulse, in my opinion, this is my application. This is a problem of, that runs afoul of coveting someone else's property and then using whatever necessary means to steal it. Gibbon the great writer, Edward Gibbon, who talked about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, noted, and as a paraphrase, that the, the, the reason Rome collapsed was because the people realized they could elect senators that would um, give them from the state coffers. And so it became this self-eating monster. My attempt here is not to stir you up into some sort of political fervor, obviously. It is simply to point out we're in a war and it's the war of ideas and it shows up in the polls. It shows up in the voting booths. It shows up in the day-to-day -day decisions we make in terms of politics and, and uh, what we think about anthropology and biology and history and philosophy. It has to do with every aspect and pursuit in life, but it starts with do we have a creator and has he spoken? And what does that say about what is right and wrong? And so I build my ethics from my view of revelation or my epistemology. That's, that's, that's our worldview. That's, that's the Christian worldview. And it's a constantly developing thing because I'm a work in progress. I'm a developing person and we're all in, in process. And, but the word of God is not, it's effect on me is a matter of, of change, but <clears throat> but the word doesn't change. And so my long illustration has been meant to show you that this is a war of thinking that starts with a rejection of God's revelation. And when we get to the elements in the armor of God, they're all dealing with God's revelation and mission. On account of this fact that we have these enemies in verse 12, take up the panoply of the armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm in the evil day. And after having done everything to stand, how many times does it say stand between verses 10 and 13? He says, be strong. And he says, put on the armor. And then he says to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then verse 13, he says to stand firm in the evil day and having done everything to stand. He says it four times that you are not in an, an offensive posture of going after the devil. You're standing firm against his attack. Hold the line. This is Nehemiah, build the wall. This is stand firm against the wiles of the enemy in terms of his communication. All right, in verse 14, therefore, fifth time, stand firm 
after having girded up your loins with the truth. As I said last hour, this is a quotation. All these are references to Isaiah. This is Isaiah 11:5. You're girded with the truth. This is preparation for battle. This is the, um, the core held together so that we're able to uh, get into action and the truth ends up being at the core. Being clothed with the, breath, with the breastplate of righteousness, clothed with the breastplate of righteousness. This phrase, uh, the breastplate of righteousness is a quotation from Isaiah 59, 17. The last hour I said, I believe, I believe that when he says the armor of God, he's talking about what Isaiah 59 says, that God puts on his armor and goes to war. So we're wearing God's armor. That's why it's the armor of God. It's what he wears. Be like your dad. So do you remember the story of little Samuel? Samuel's the little kid. Um, his mother gives him to the Lord. And so Tate drops him off with Eli, the priest, makes him a little ephod. So little Samuel's running around. looks like one of the little priests, but he's like a miniature priest. He's got the same cloak and the same breastplate, the same, same headgear, same little turban, but he's a little priest. I think that that's what you end up looking like here. You are to imitate your father. And I, <laughs> <laughs> you're to imitate your father in Ephesians chapter five, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then in, in, in chapter six, he says, put on God's armor from Isaiah 59. And so now you look like dad. And this is what God's wearing, the breastplate of righteousness. It is protection for you to walk worthy of your calling, to walk in the light as God himself is in the light. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Having shod the feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is Isaiah 52, the, the gospel um, uh, has wheels, right? Because of those who spread it. And so what are our feet for? To get, get busy, to go share the gospel. Get on the road, go share the gospel. And so I think this is an interesting thing that he says, in terms of your equipment, you need to be on mission. This is the mission, the gospel of peace. Not that you've received the benefits of the gospel yourself, but that you're on the mission to share it, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Upon all, having taken up, having taken up the shield of the faith, the faith might make all the difference. Pistis is faith, and it either means you believing something or the thing you believe. And you have to ask that question. And I think usually when he puts an article, the faith, I think he's talking about the thing believed. So in other words, you take the truth that God has given you and you hold it up and it defends you against the lies of your enemy because he says, what does the shield of faith do? With which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I didn't get to bring this out, but I want you to notice this interesting word here. Look right up here, will. You will be couple things in that word are uh, certainty. It's like, it's like an, a certain idea. But more importantly, it's future. And it is future, and I'm trying to translate it from the Greek future into English future. Because in the Greek, this is going to be very complicated and technical, but I just have to say it. In the Greek language, in the Koine Greek of the Bible, the future tense means future action in a future time. It's not really complicated at all. It's just like the English future. It's going to happen. You will. It doesn't mean that you might be able to, or hey, if you really trust the Lord enough, the shield of faith is rated for the pressure God is describing here. You're trusting in God and what he said will defeat the attack of the evil one. This is great encouragement. Men, some of you women, perhaps, but probably not. I don't know. I'm going to talk about fist fights. <laughs> Did you have that guy when you were in sixth grade that was in eighth grade? That was, he was like on a mission to help you um, rearrange your face a little bit. Did you have that as a, as a kid? Hopefully you weren't that eighth grader looking for the sixth grader. I want to take him down a peg or two, but I'm talking about that. That kid wanted to fight you. 
and you knew it was coming and there was nothing you're going to be able to do about it. You're in a dilemma, right? This is the bully dilemma. If I tell, then that makes it worse. And he enlists more people to his cause. If I run, then I'm a coward and it never goes away. If I fight him, I, uh, if he's bigger, I might well lose, probably will lose. Um, unless you really hurt and like really injure someone. And then that's got its own trouble. So I'm going to fight him and it's going to go bad, but at least it'll be over. You know, and there's no other way generally, then you got to face it. Think of the time that you had somebody that said, okay, you and me swing set three o'clock. We're going to do this. Ever happened to you? Not the swing set, but I mean, somebody makes a threat and other people hear it. So now it, it's news and you're going to have to have this fight. You ever have that guys? Public school? Happens a lot in homeschool with us, but anyway. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it doesn't happen at all in homeschool. And our kids, I wonder about this because they didn't have to deal with this very much. All right, so, so there you are. You've got two hours till three o'clock. The fight's coming. If you're smart, you've stopped trying to get out of it. I, we're never smart as kids, right? We, we're like, oh, what can I do? What can I do? if you're ever in this situation, just know you're probably going to have to show up and whatever you do, you're going to have to stand. You can stand there and let him hit you. You can defend yourself, try to not hurt him too much. If you're trained in really like Krav or something where you can really hurt someone, my recommendation is don't, especially if it's a kid bully thing. Don't do the ender thing where you, um, you beat him so that he'll never fight again and then he dies. Like that, that's, not, that's not a good look. <laughs> but there you are, you're trying to think through, like I'm in science class, I'm not thinking about science class, I'm thinking about survival of the fittest and um, how I'm about to get killed by the eighth grader. And uh, he's got 20 or 30 pounds on me and he's way meaner than I am. And in those deliberations, is it just me or do you sometimes wonder if your punches even are gonna land? You wonder if I've learned to box. I've learned a little bit. My dad did some help. I mean, I took some Taekwondo. I, I've learned some things. Is my punch even going to have enough force to do anything or is it? And, and in me, there's a little bit of a skeptic sometimes where I won't even think that there will be real, it'll really even hurt. You doubt yourself. You doubt your equipment. Have you ever had that nightmare where, um, where you, you need, uh, this is probably just me, where you need to be defending your family and, um, and the, the, the 45 bullets just don't go. You keep pulling the trigger and it doesn't go off. You're just afraid that it won't happen. It just, it's not strong enough. It's not good enough. There is, I think in the human heart, this capacity to doubt ourselves right out of our power. And I think you should doubt yourself. I don't, I'm not one of these believe in yourself people. That's insane. Believe in yourself. Believe you'll, you'll drop the ball. Believe you'll fail. But God, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. What I'm trying to show you is we have from God's word something that you and I need to take on faith. The shield of the faith is actually rated to extinguish these arrows. And it's the only thing we're told that can do it. Your shield that you, you knitted together out of, uh, out of straw, your thatch shield, you know, might have stopped a, a spear thrown, you know, by a, a human arm. But it's nothing for the flaming arrows of the evil one, the hellfire missiles of Satan. He's not playing around. You're going to have to have the supernatural infinite power of God. And what Paul tells you, and I think you need to take this very seriously, is that the shield of the faith can extinguish all. It will extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That means you have to get hold of God's word and you have to trust him in what it says. You have to get hold of God's word and you have to trust him in what it says. And start with Romans 8, 28. Start with, um, for, uh, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I believe that. 
Satan says you're not good enough. Satan says that your sins are going to find you out and you're going to go to hell for your sins and you're not a good enough person. And if you really were a Christian, then you'd really be more active as a Christian, but you're not a really a Christian because you're doubting God or some other thing that creeps into your head, like, uh, like that cockroach that rattles around in your brain. Now, the shield of the faith puts it out and it's the only thing we're told that does. You take God's word and you trust him in what it says. That's it. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights with uh, r- rationales for dealing with crisis, the, the way to think about the trouble from what the scripture says. Remember the three questions, the three questions of our theology of problem solving. Who is God? Who am I? And what is God going to do with me? If you can really biblically answer those questions, you will be able to weather the storm. But this is the shield of the faith. And it does extinguish, it will extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And if you try a different method, I don't think it works. Try to argue without standing on God's revelation. You've given up all your, all, you've thrown all your shield away. You don't have a, a, a leg to stand on. The helmet of salvation, this is another part of the armor. Again, Isaiah 59, 17, the helmet of salvation in order to receive. And that is an idiom that says, in standing firm with all of this equipment so that I can receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There appears to be in what the apostle Paul teaches here, a, a portrait of strength and capability that is all spiritual. It's none of it's physical. You can't see it. And I love the VBS thing where the little kids have the the different weapons and equipment and they all go go home with their armor and it's cute. But the illustration is only meant to show you you're fighting a spiritual war that requires spiritual equipment. And it's a defensive battle. You're standing firm against someone else's attack and you're lifting a shield. It's the shield of the faith. All right, let's, let's close down the, the book of Ephesians in uh, the prayer section. Through all prayer and petition, be praying at all times in the spirit, even unto this very thing, he says. So we've moved from putting on our armor to using it in prayer. It's the same conversation. You need to engage your father personally in prayer. That's something that we forget. We have a personal God. We need to talk to him. He's talking to us in his word right here. We need to talk to him in prayer being alert in all perseverance and supplication concerning all the saints. So the first thing he says to pray for is all the saints. All the the believers ought to be praying for all the believers. Now the saint here is the same people he's talking about in the beginning of Ephesians and Corinthians. These are believers. Saints means set apart. Those that are set apart to God. And it means believers. That's what the New Testament means when it says saints. When When it tells you the Corinthians that he's writing to in 1 Corinthians are saints to the saints in Corinth. These are some wicked Corinthians, but they're the saints in Corinth. Being alert and all perseverance and supplication concerning the saints and on behalf of us. So pray for everybody and then pray for us, the apostles. That to me, Paul says, will be given a word in the opening of my mouth in courage. So that, I'm sorry, to make known the mystery of the gospel on behalf of which I'm an ambassador in chains. So verses 19 and 20 talk about the nature of Pauline prayer. And beloved, I harp on this all the time. We do a little prayer meeting most of the time, first hour, have been for a couple of years now, where we take people's prayer requests. We meet Wednesday nights at six, take your prayer requests. And believe me, if you have a physical thing, or if you're in the hospital, if there's something going on with your chronic uh, illnesses or, or anything like that, it is on our list and we're praying for you about that. But Paul does not generally pray those kinds of prayers when he's talking about his prayer life or encouraging us to pray. What does Paul pray for? What does he say? Pray for us that to me will be given a word in the opening of my mouth and courage. Y'all pray that for me, David. Pray, Pray that for me. I pray that for you. Anybody working the work of God needs this being prayed for them that God will give us something to say and the courage to say it so that I can make known the mystery of the gospel. The whole book of Ephesians has been about this mystery on behalf of which I am an ambassador in chains. How's that? 
an ambassador in chains. The world has chained Paul, and he's an ambassador to, of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually, he would be an ambassador under the lictor's axe. And under Nero, he was beheaded. He was executed. As we read in Second Timothy, he was being poured out as a drink offering. So that in this gospel, I may speak boldly as it is necessary for me to speak. I need prayer so that I can be the Apostle Paul. That's what he's saying. So that I can say what God wants me to say. So I ask you to pray and lift that up, to be part of that mission. This is one of the great missionary appeals to prayer. One of the great missionary appeals to prayer, where when the missionaries come through, oh, pray for us. It's not just words. And when you pray to God, you're not just saying words. You are going to your dad and asking him for his work to go forward and becoming part of that effort by so praying. This is the way Paul prays. This is the priority the apostle Paul has in prayer. If you want to do a fun study, write this, you know, write this note down for future reference. Go through all of the 13 letters of Paul and look at what he prays for. Look at the nature of Paul's prayers. When you get to Galatians, you'll say there's not a lot of praying. He skipped the prayer and went straight to the shouting in Galatians, his first letter. He toned it down. You know, as we, as we age, we mellow, <laughs> maybe. But uh, the other letters, 12 of the letters, we have the contents of Paul's prayers. And this is one of the great places where Paul tells you how he prays. He's praying for your spiritual life throughout Ephesians. He's praying now for the mission, which is directly connected to the war we wage. Because here's the thing. Your enemy has the whole world deceived and they're all in POW camp. And you're trying to spring some people out of it. That's, that's, that's the war. I mean, that's how it boils over into the mission. And now he closes with a personal note, shows us the Christian life isn't mechanical. It's not just going through steps and ritual. You go to any church and just kind of, you ought to be able to go to any Christian church and meet Christians and have fellowship. But there's a personal connection here that we're designed for. And he says, now so that you may know, even you, so I'm, I'm emphasizing you may know the things concerning me, how I'm doing, all things to you will be made known by Tukikos, the beloved brother and faithful servant of the Lord. Now, I took the name Tukikos in Greek, and I just put English letters to go with the Greek letters so that you would hear how his mama called his name, apparently. That's right. She named her kid Tukikos. And that would probably sound pretty straightforward, pretty, pretty good if we were Greek speakers. This would all, by the way, sound very Mediterranean. It would be very olive oil and, uh, and grape leaves to us. And, and we don't think of it that way because we're speaking English here. Um, have you ever hung around Greek people? Um, but this guy's name is not Tychicus, it's Tukikos. And I don't know whose idea it was to change the U to a Y uh, in transliterating Greek to English. I, it, I'm sure it has to do with Latin, but that's just horrible. The guy's name is Tukikos. Beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, how would you like if Paul knew you personally? How would you like for him to say this about you? Would he say this about you? Would he say, you are a faithful servant in the Lord as far as I have seen? Wow. I don't know this guy, Tukikos. I'm sure I'll see him in heaven. I'm sure he'll be right next to us serving in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. But forevermore, he is enshrined in the word of God as someone who is what? the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord. God, give us that summary. Whom I've sent to you for the purpose of this very thing. Apparently he carried the letter uh, to the Ephesians to also share, here's the news of Paul who's in prison, so that you may know the things concerning us and that he may encourage your hearts. I would observe this with you. If you hear from the apostle Paul, how he's doing and what God's doing in his life, that's meant to encourage your heart. That, that personal connection thing is very explicit in Paul's letters. People say, well, Paul is the doc doctrinal stuff that doesn't really give you a lot of you know, emotional flavor. There's a lot of personal interaction in Paul's letters. It's always in a personal context. And he's saying, I want you to be encouraged when you hear the news about me. 
I'm just bringing out for you something that we kind of already know. When you're family and you love each other and you wish you could be together but you can't and someone comes and tells you, he's okay. He's doing great. He's cranking out letters while in prison. You can't believe what he wrote to the Philippians. Maybe we'll get a copy over this way. But this is the kind of thing that Tukikos is able to tell them that Paul, God apparently had to put him into one position uh, in, in this Roman imprisonment so that he would be able to write these prison epistles. So this is the product. Look at what he did for you in writing Ephesians. This is Tukikos' message to the Ephesians. Peace to the brethren and love with faithfulness from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you able to dogmatically say on the basis of God's word what God wants for you? Can you say God wants good and not bad? I mean, I know that's kind of a fundamental thought. Of course he wants good things. But can you say it from the scriptures? Do you know what God's man, inspired by God's spirit, says to God's people that God wants for you? Right here, verse 23. Peace to, you, to the brethren and love with faithfulness from God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to have the fullness and the richness that comes from a spiritual life that truly engages his word. He wants you to have him. And that means joy and peace and patience and kindness. That means the character of Jesus Christ expressed through you. And not just that you're a peacemaker, but that you enjoy God's peace. Not just that you make other people rejoice, but that you have the joy that is God's eternal bliss. God wants you to have him, a real relationship with him. And it's a beautiful way Paul closes. The grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in incorruption, literally, in incorruption, that love him in a pure sense. Grace of God be with those. What a beautiful challenge. What a beautiful command. What an incredible book is the letter to the Ephesians. If you'd like to hang on to the phone call for just a minute, we, we have operators standing by who have a survey to see how you enjoyed your phone call experience today. Push one if you would like to receive email. No, okay, so Ephesians is uh, six chapters. It took us 20 lessons or messages to, um, to, to do something like touching the surface of Ephesians, um, which I originally tried to do it in six, but that's why I never give you the sermon calendar. Ephesians breaks into... Uh, it's one summary topic. It's the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. And it breaks into two pieces, chapters one through three and chapters four through six. And I want you to forevermore have hold of this because this letter is the kind of the pinnacle of Paul's special deposit that he had to give the church, which is um, an advance on maybe something Peter had or something um, that we read in the book of Hebrews. It is Paul who had as the apostle to the Gentiles, this mystery of the church most explicitly. And here's the way it breaks. Chapters one through three are the privileges of the church. Those who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, this new work that God began in 33 AD on the day of Pentecost, the church, the body of Christ. And chapters four through six are the practices of the church, how we're supposed to walk, how we're supposed to live, all those commands. And in those commands, we've seen the worthy walk, putting off the old man, walking in the new life, imitating God as beloved children, walking in the light as God is in the light, walking by the spirit, the household code, dealing with the invisible war of Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 17, the mission prayer, and then Paul's wrap up greetings. This is something for you to memorize. This is something for you to hang your hat on and know for the rest of your lives. If I said you to memorize, I mean somebody that knows it does memory. This is something, if you're going to pick something in scripture to really grab hold of, get hold of Ephesians. It is six chapters and a lifetime of, 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 of study. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we close our service this morning for anyone who may be in the hearing of my voice and uh, online. We broadcasting to, to wherever the internet is, and um, it's recorded as well. So if you're hearing this after the fact, uh, our attention now turns to you who may be uh, here at this point in the in the message without 
uh, a firm grasp of, of your position in Christ that you may not really understand. Are you a Christian? Do you have eternal life? Are you going to heaven when you die? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? These kinds of questions to uh, assess your status. And maybe you're, you're not really sure. And uh, we always want you to be sure. The Bible describes it not as something that, you know, maybe, maybe someday you'll, you'll, you'll eventually get there. It describes it as something you need to deal with right now. We don't know how many days we get, but we know we have today and we have right now. And so you're here and hearing this for this reason, Jesus died for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead. And the question to ask is, do you believe in Jesus as your savior? Do you believe that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross? Do you believe that uh, God sent his son because he loved you? God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. I mean, to say something like that, you have to believe a couple things. First of all, you have to understand, apparently, you have, to un you have to understand that you need a savior. And this is very offensive. We are sinful by nature. And we know this as certain as we see uh, kids on the playground. The very first time that little beautiful child without any training or preparation looks in our eyes and says, no, we know we're born sinners. It takes a little bit of time to see it, see it manifested, but we are, we're broken. We're born broken. Children don't have to be taught to be violent. They have to be taught to restrain their, their lust or violence. We're broken and we're sinners and we need a savior. And this is why the gospel, and this is what the Bible presents, that man was born, was created perfect. He fell in sin. We're all under Adam in sin. And so we need the, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, to come take away our sins. And that's really the whole thing. You can't do anything about your sin. You didn't, uh, you don't even know what all your sins are. For you to start dealing with your sins, um, this is an impossible task. It's a load you can't carry. You're gonna have to trust in Jesus Christ that he paid for your sins on the cross. And the reason you need to deal with this is because you want a relationship with God. A relationship with God is described as enjoying the things of God and being with God forever. And the alternative to a relationship with God and being with God forever is being separated from God forever. And the description of separation from God forever is called a lake burning with fire and sulfur. It is a horrible thing to contemplate. And all Christians who love God and God's image bearers uh, are, are desperately opposed to our loved ones, to our friends, to our families, spending eternity without God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our Father, we thank you for this eternal life, which you've enjoyed in thinking your thoughts today. Thank you for the wonderful epistle to the Ephesians, which trains us who we are and what we're to do. And I ask that we would be good stewards of this revelation in our own lives and in encouraging others with the precious days you've given us. Father, teach us all here at Preston City Bible Church to redeem the time for the days are evil, not to waste the opportunity, but to seize it in mission and on mission. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.